Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. It's that time again for a football by numbers special and jersey number 89. The greatest NFL players that wore that jersey is coming up with Dan and Andrew Newman of the Hello Old Sports Podcast. We're going to talk about some great tight ends, a few defense alignment, and much more coming up in a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com, and welcome once again to the Pigpen, our football by numbers. And it's hard to believe, but we are all the way up to jersey number 89. We started as zeros. We've been counting them up, and we have some great guests uh, one of our fan favorites here. We have Dan and Andrew Newman of Hello Old Sports Podcast on Sports History Network joining us to help us with jersey number 89s. Dan and Andrew, welcome back to the pig pen. Thank you. It's good to be here. I do have to ask, you said we have one of our fan favorites here today. Uh, <laughs> fan favorite. Well, you're one of our fan favorite guests as a, as a group, you know, the Oh, okay. Good. That's, I, I wasn't singling you out. <laughs> I, I appreciate you being diplomatic for days. Yeah. The, the podcast, one of our fan favorites here. Yes. No, <laughs> Thanks for gl- having us on. Glad to be here again, Darren. I think um, I think I did number four, just me, and then Andrew and, and I since then have done 51 and 58 and 64 and something else, and maybe in the 70s or something. So this is this is good. I think this is the last one we're doing. So it's been a lot of fun. I think we did the very first one back in like February. So this, this has been great. Thanks for having us. Oh, th- thank you for joining us. It's a, it's a lot better than just hearing me talk that, you know, this is great for the listeners too. And uh, so we appreciate getting your insight and your wisdom of the football knowledge of these great uh, players throughout football history. And uh, I guess we'll start off where uh, we normally do. Uh, we'll talk about your podcast here at the end, if you don't mind, but the uh, Let's start off with the who the Pro Football Hall of Fame says wore number 89. And uh, the first one they say is Willie Davis. And I could not find anywhere. And I don't, I think when we talked uh, before we started recording here, uh, none of us could find Willie Davis in a jersey number 89 in the NFL. So we probably will dismiss him from our discussion, even though he's a great player, just uh, not a great 89. Um, uh, but the other ones on there are four great players uh, Mike Ditka, Dave Robinson, Gino Marchetti. And John Mackey, uh, some some great Hall of Famers wearing that eighty nine. Yeah, no, those those are four really great Hall of Famers. Robinson, a member of those great '60s Packers teams, Mackey and Ditka, who I think might have been the two, the first two Hall of Famers. Or I'm sorry, the first two tight ends inducted into the Hall of Fame, the sort of the pioneers at that position in the '60s, and then. Marchetti or Marchetti, I guess it's pronounced, was the defensive leader of 
those great Baltimore Colts teams of the 50s and early 60s, he kind of was to the defense on those teams, what Unitas was to the offense. So, yeah, those are those are four really strong Hall of Fame players. Yeah, um, Mackie, only number 89 for his last year with San Diego in 72. Um, so, you know, I know we've done this song and dance before. I didn't have him on my list just because... Not that he's not a great player, but I just don't have him because it was, you know, he did not he did not wear the number in his glory years with the Colts, and in fact only wore it for thirteen games during which time he caught eleven passes. So uh I'm not sure if everybody else put him on there and, and overlooked that, but up front I just uh I did not include him on in my list for those reasons. Yeah, I I didn't have Mackey on there either for similar reasons, you know, just one season. And there are so many great players that are not in the Hall of Fame, plus our Hall of Famers, that uh, it's pretty easy to come up with a list of 10 without uh, Mr. Mackey on there for one season. Yeah, I, I, I tend to take that approach, too, as those who've listened to us on this before have heard. So, yeah, Mackey was not in my top 10 either, but, you know, a great player nonetheless. All right. Well, where do we want to start our discussion at? Do you want to start with our Hall of Famers? I think that's good. Yeah. Um, I had Marchetti at number one or Marchetti. I thought it was Marchetti, but I wasn't sure. So um, I had him at number one. Um, I understand there's a couple other guys who may have something to say about that, but I, I look at him as a, you know, he was a nine time first team all pro for nine straight years from 56 to 64. Um, has his number retired for the Colts, um, which I always put a, uh, a premium on when it comes to these things. He's also in the Ravens ring of honor, despite obviously having never played for the Ravens, but because he's a Baltimore legend, they do the right thing and, and honor him. So I had, and he also had a big play in the, what they call the greatest game ever played in 1958. He uh, tackled Frank Gifford, um, then got hurt and very famously would not leave the sideline, wanted to watch the rest of the game from the sideline. And in 1972 was called the greatest pass rusher ever. Now, obviously a lot of football has been played since then, but um, all of those were reasons I went with him as number one. Unanimously selected to the NFL hundredth anniversary team, Two years ago, Forrest Gregg said that Marchetti was one of the best, was the best player that he ever played again. And not that this should make a difference, but it's also worth noting that before he came to the NFL, he also fought at the Battle of the Bulge. So a guy who had a really neat, really neat life, a lot of neat experiences also opened. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. I don't know if the Battle of the Bulge was a neat experience. <laughs> An interesting experience, um, you know, obviously a very historically important experience is probably a better way to put it. And one of these guys, like a lot of these cults were, who was really kind of beloved in the Baltimore area, even long after his playing days, opened a series of hamburger chains that became Geno's Hamburgers that was very popular in the mid-Atlantic Baltimore area in the 60s and 70s. So... Yeah, he is a Baltimore icon, lived a very long life, just passed away two years ago. And like I said, he was kind of to the off to the defense, what Unitas was to the offense. We They didn't count sacks in those days, so it's hard to tell. But yeah, he was my number one as well. 
I totally agree with you guys because, you know, especially putting him on first on the list, he's number one. Um, he, he was a man's man. Like you said, you know, the guy war hero, uh, the hero of a, of a great defense in the, you know, the late fifties and early sixties for the Colts who were basically the team, you know, next to the giants for, for many years in that, that span. And, uh, you know, and he teamed up with guys like Art Donovan on that, uh, great Colts defense of that era. And he was their leader. And I know, uh, we had Upton Bell on talking about when he was player personnel during the sixties with the Colts and Upton had nothing but great things to say about, it. I guess Mar- Marchetti was just, a a great, uh, man too, besides being a great player and, you know, a, a great, uh, warrior for, for our country. So no doubt about it. Uh, Gino is, uh, is our man at the top. And that defensive line was the strength of that team with, with Donovan and even with big daddy Lipscomb, who was a really good all pro player for a couple of years in the late fifties. So yeah, totally one of the greatest defensive linemen of all time. Yeah, totally agree. And probably one of the greatest defensive fronts of all time, like you were alluding to. So yeah, I think uh, no doubt about him. Uh, do we want to uh, talk about uh, uh, Ditka or Robinson next? I have Ditka at number two. Um, okay. You know, it becomes so much with Ditka, sort of the persona overshadows. It often even overshadows what kind of, what kind of a coach he was. And obviously he was, you know, a coach for some really good Bears teams beyond just 85, but 85 alone is enough. But, well, you know, I think a lot of times sort of the – the sweater vest and the clips of him cursing and the, you know, all that sort of overshadows that, yeah, this is still a phenomenal player in his own right with the bears. And then later with the Cowboys, I know he was briefly with the Eagles in the, in, in between um, first team, all NFL 63, 64 second team, 62, 65 and 66. So there's a five year run where he's uh, either first or second team all pro uh, with those Bears teams, which um, you know won that won that championship in '63. Then he goes to the Cowboys. He's on the early, uh, not the very earliest, but he's on those Cowboy teams that make those couple of Super Bowls there. Um, so I, I catches a touchdown to, pass in the Super Bowl when they beat Miami. Yep. Yeah. 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 So I I went with him there as as number two. Yeah, and I was kind of torn because Dave Robinson had some really good years. He was not on the earliest 60s Packers teams, the ones that beat the Giants in the NFL title game in 61 and 62. But then he was a key player on the the, the later teams, the teams that won three in a row in the first two Super Bowls. In fact, I'm pretty sure that in the 66 NFL title game, not the Ice Bowl the year before, when the Cowboys were driving down the field to score what would have been the tying touchdown in that 66 NFL title game. And I believe it was Robinson who got into the backfield and pressured Roger Staubach and forced him to throw the ball away. And then Staubach threw an, I'm sorry, Don Meredith was not Staubach was Don Meredith threw an interception. And yeah, it was Robinson who was in the backfield pressuring Meredith and then Meredith throws the interception. So kind of one of the heroes of that 66 title game. I was very close between Ditka and Robinson. 
I ended up also going with Ditka. It was very, very close. And maybe the only reason I did it was because Ditka routinely makes a list of sort of the best, you know, seven or eight tight ends of all time. And Robinson doesn't do the same for linebackers. That might be a little bit of a flimsy basis for my decision, but I might call them 2A and 2B if I really had a choice, but I did kind of give Ditka the narrow edge over Nate, uh, over uh, Dave Robinson. I yeah. was in a similar situation. I, I took Ditka two and Robinson three, but Robinson, you know, just to be fair to him, think about who he was playing next to on that linebacking core. You know, he had uh, but Nitschke on there. Uh, well, Willie Davis was up in front of him on defensive end, but you know, Nitschke was, just a, a beast. You know, he was probably him and Buckus were probably the best linebackers of that era of the sixties. So uh, Robinson played sort of a second fiddle, but man, he would have been uh, you know linebacker a on in, probably any other team except the bears. A couple other things I would notice that I would note about Robinson. It took him a long time to get into the hall of fame. He was just inducted, I think in like 2000 and, 14. If you give me a second here, I'll look at the final the final list here. Robinson was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2013. He was part of the class of 2013. So it took him a while. He's also, and Andrew and I speak and speak to this because we did our when we do our in memoriam episodes. There were a lot of members of those Packer dynasties who passed away last year. Willie Davis, Willie Wood, uh, Herb Adderley, Paul Horning. Robinson and Jerry Kramer are sort of the last living legends, the last two Hall of Famers from those 60s Packers teams. So he's a guy who's been an ambassador for those teams for the last 50 or so years. So yet, without question, a great player, Dave Robinson. Yeah, and and I think the, the first three is pretty clear there. You could maybe rotate uh, Robinson and Ditka like we talked about, but... um. You know, I, I think it's a pretty assuming you do what we all seem to have done and and struck Mackey off the list just from a number standpoint. Hard to argue with those being the top three in in some order. Yeah, I totally agreed. So I guess that takes us. Uh, you know, we've talked about the four uh, Hall of Famers that we're we're going to speak of and put three of them on our list. So now we get into that land of uh, I like to call not yet in the Hall of Fame because I think there may be a couple of these guys we're going to talk about that may be future Hall of Famers here and probably real soon, probably in the next decade or so, I'm guessing. Uh, so where do we want to start with these guys? My number four fit into that category that you just mentioned. Did yours, Andrew? My number four is, I would assume, ought to be a Hall of Famer, you know, pretty soon. Yeah, so it sounds like we have the same guy. Steve Smith? Yep. Yeah, I, I went with Steve Smith here. Um, long career. Uh, 12 years, 13 seasons with the Panthers. Three more seasons with Baltimore. Um, was a two-time first-team All-Pro, 01 and 05. Second-team All-Pro in 08, which is, there's a pretty decent spread there. You know, making an all, being an All-Pro in 2001 and then being an All-Pro in 2008 as well. Um He's also, I believe, eighth all-time in receptions. I had that. I'm going to pull that up just to be sure. Um, but, uh, you know, and again, it's or eighth all-time in receiving yards. I mean, and if you look at the guys who were above him, 
Jerry Rice, Larry Fitzgerald, Terrell Owens, Randy Moss, Isaac Bruce, Tony Gonzalez, Tim Brown, Steve Smith. So that puts him above guys like Marvin Harrison, Reggie Wayne, Chris Carter. Um, you know, I know it's a it's a much more pass happy era, but um, certainly he goes in the rare air in terms of numbers, even within that era. And the longevity on top of that. Yeah, he has 1,000 yards receiving in 2014 with Baltimore at the age of 35. The other thing I think is interesting is in 2004, I guess he was hurt because he only played one game. And then he came back in 05 the following year, which was was probably his best season. 1,563 yards on 103 receptions. Leads the league in receptions, yards, and touchdowns. First team All-Pro, Pro Bowler. Wins Comeback Player of the Year. How many guys play another full decade after winning comeback player of the year? Yeah, My biggest question is why did Carolina let him go and have to play for the Baltimore Ravens? Because as a Steelers fan, I have a problem (laughs) with that. (laughs) Guy was too good to be on the Ravens. He's a pain in the ass. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and he had more left, I think, than a lot of people thought. Um, And that's the other thing you kind of got to remember with him, too, is you know, he came in in 01. I think that was that 0 and that was that 1 in 15. Panthers team, which is the reason that Steve, uh, that uh, George Seifert's not in the Hall of Fame, you know, and he had some years with Del Home, but did not play. You know, there was a lot of time guys after Del Home. You know, I think the Panthers had Vinny Testaverde back for a while, and then you know he had Cam Newton. He didn't play his whole career with great, great quarterbacks like some guys are fortunate to do. You know, kind of went through the ringer with several different guys. Um, you know, and then who would have been the quarterback on those those Ravens teams? Flacco? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, Flacco had some nice years, but still not, you know, it's not Patrick Mahomes back there. So, to put up those kind of numbers over that era without the benefit of a great offense most of the time, I think is, is equally as impressive, as is also a guy of his stature having that kind of a career as well. I mean, what was he? Five? Uh, he was, was he 5'10"? Something along those lines? Five, five, nine, 195 pounds. There you go. So, I mean, I think even one of those seasons with the Ravens was the year that Flacco got hurt early in the season. And I think uh, Ryan Mallett was throwing to him. I think the one, one season, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Maybe that was why he retired. That, that could be. That could be. It make, uh, makes me want to retire. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you guys that him being the fourth player in there. We're too agreeable tonight. We got to shake some things up here. Maybe this is a. As we get later on, there will probably be more because there's a little more variation. I mean, we had three Hall of Famers and Steve Smith, who I think we all agree will be a Hall of Famer pretty much, if not the year he's eligible, not too long after that. I I agree. So, okay, where does uh, our uh, next player take us to then? So I went with number five, and maybe this is where we're going to get into a little bit of this disagreement. I went with Otis Taylor as my number five wide receiver for the Chiefs from 65 to 75. One of the stars of the 69 Super Bowl winning team scored a touchdown in that Super Bowl. It's sort of a famous highlight. It kind of does like a sideline route and gets free of the defensive back and then runs 20 to 30 yards down the sideline for the last the last score of the or for the you know for the touchdown in that Super Bowl four against Minnesota, you know, couple of all pro selections, a couple of thousand yards receiving, not in the Hall of Fame, not a guy who 
I don't think deserves to or will be in the Hall of Fame, but that was where I went next was with Otis Taylor. I had Taylor at six, although you know you certainly may have talked me in to him there. It looks like it says here he was the MVP of the 69 AFL championship game, so that would have actually... He was the MVP of the last AFL game ever played, if you think about it. Yeah, um, uh, true. Yeah, so he... Um, and then it's not like he was a guy who was done shortly after that. He played, what, six years in the NFL, uh, was a first-team All-Pro in 1971 and 72 in the NFL. Um, was And then, you know, before that had been a first couple of a first team all pro in 66 and 67. So, you know, I, I had him one slot below, but you can certainly convince me of him being five. I did have to put, I had never heard the story of him with Jack Del Rio until doing my research on this. I still haven't heard. I still have not heard this story of you, no, Darren, please. No, please tell us. I'm, I'm, oh, anxious. Now I'm a little worried. It's flimsily sourced, but I, I, I looked into this and it seems pretty legit. So if you guys look this up and it's a wives tale, feel free to edit it out, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure this is legit. So Jack Del Rio was on the chiefs during the strike in 1987. Otis Taylor was a scout or, you know, some, not like the GM, but he was in some sort of either scouting or front office position with the, with the chiefs, but kind of an obscure one, not like a player would necessarily know him. The, striking players were outside um picketing and there were uh fan you know there were replacement players at the time and they were out there giving a real hard time to anyone who was there to cross the picket line basically and otis taylor gets out of his car and i guess had kept in pretty good shape after he retired <laughs> jack del rio beat him up and let's be honest that you shouldn't beat up a replacement player either, but you especially shouldn't be wrong and be beating up one of the best players in the history of the franchise who also happens to work in the front office. So yes, there is an article here from silver and black. Well, this is this thing I see here is from a Raiders blog on SB nation, but it seems, you know, sourced from something else. Um, and I guess Otis Taylor ended up suing Del Rio and they would end up settling out of court. But I, I couldn't believe I had never I had never heard of this. Until I haven't now. either. Especially because no. Jack Del Rio has been an NFL coach for a long time. He was a head coach in Jacksonville and then in Oakland. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, he beat up Otis Taylor. God, the worst that uh, Shane Falco got in the movie replacement. So when he was a replacement player, it was just his car rolled over. Uh, getting <laughs> beat up, uh, that sounds pretty harsh. You know, and it's funny I, when they had the baseball strike in 94, they did have some replacement players that were in their mid forties, but I guess in the NFL, especially at wide receiver, you probably wouldn't have had that. So good for Otis Taylor for looking like he could have been a replacement player. Yep. So I, I read real quick, an article I hear have have here from the Los Angeles times in 1987. So contemporary source first day of picketing. Many of the chiefs surrounded by picket signs are gathering for an initial demonstration up rolls a pickup truck. They have a blah, blah, blah. tire thing appeared uh, later that day. Two players are picketing Jack Del Rio and somebody else. A local small college student comes to Arrowhead for a replacement tryout. His agent drives him over after the tryout. The agent walks out and discovers the tires on his car slashed out walks. The player escorted by Otis Taylor. Del Rio doesn't recognize Taylor screams. They grab each other, roll around other ground. So yes. Ah. 
Yeah, that's but LA that, Times. So that's that's pretty legitimate there. So, so let's let's give him credit for aging well enough where 15 years after his career ended, he could be mistaken for a still active NFL player or replacement potential replacement player. So just a little color to the proceedings. Who did you have at five, Darren? I I ended up having West Chandler ahead of Otis Taylor as a wide, you know, the wide receiver. And I I had it. I mean, they were it was close, but I just sort of went with the the Pro Bowls, you know, West Chandler had four Pro Bowls to Taylor had three. I mean, that's that's pretty loose, you know, even though Taylor has more all pro seasons than uh, than uh, West Chandler has. But I um, I don't know. I, I just picked it that way because uh, I thought he had some pre- pretty good numbers for the era he played in, you know, almost 9000 yards receiving 56 touchdowns. And, uh, you know, guy was just a stud, especially playing his first uh three or four seasons with New Orleans Saints when they weren't very good. I think that was the years they were wearing the bags over their heads. Um, and then, you know, got to play on the San Diego Chargers and, uh, you know, Dan Fouts and the gang really uh, took them in. But I, I thought uh, they're probably, you know, about equal. I just put Wes Chandler ahead of Otis Taylor just for those reasons. And I have to say, I knew nothing about Wes Chandler. The name was maybe vaguely familiar to me and he like you said he started off with the very bad new orleans saints which was, was that still the archie manning years in the late 1970s i believe so yeah Man- the, manning was just maybe going on his demise and getting out of there at that yeah time. I, I, I looked at it yeah he was there at least in you know through 79 manning and then he goes to the chargers west chandler and plays with this amazing offense this this air coriel dan fouts team and his best year, his only all pro year, and I'm, I was looking at it, and it was he led the league in receiving with 1,032 yards. He's, he averaged 129 receiving yards per game, which is just insane if you think about it. And then I'm looking and I'm like, but he only played eight games. And then I realized that was the strike year. So he put up numbers that would have been pretty good numbers, nine touchdowns. 1032 yards and that's in eight games in a strike year that was his highest receiving total not for his whole career but he he only had a couple of seasons where he put up those type of numbers in a 16 game season so i mean obviously who knows maybe he could have been injured at some point or whatever but if they had played a full season in 1982 he might have had 15 1600 yards and you know 15 or 16 touchdowns. So it really is a shame. We talk about strikes that that year's strike wrecks such havoc on what would have been a career year. What probably already was a career year for West Chandler. And I had him sixth. I'm a little ashamed to say that I didn't know all that much about his career before researching this. So I had Taylor and Chandler flipped. I don't know. Andrew was Chandler. your five. Had Chandler immediate. No, I had Chandler. He probably should have been, but I had Chandler right below Taylor. So I had them six and seven. Okay. So we're all kind of sort of on the same page here. Hey, but I'll go with you guys. You, the, uh, you guys trump me. You have the, you have the votes to get them. So we'll put Taylor five Chandler six, but we got to hear who Andrew's five was now. Oh, yeah. that's right. And like I said, I won't, I went with Fred dryer here. Um, Ultimately, you guys could probably convince me to go with the order we were just talking about. Um, Dreyer, you know, obviously became kind of a famous, to some degree, Hollywood 
actor after that. Um, was a first team all pro in 1974, was credited unofficially with 15 sacks in 1974. Obviously, 82 was when straight uh, sacks started to become an official stat. Second team all pro in 75. Um, all NFL rookie with the Giants in 69, was there for three years and then spent 10 years with the Rams, played in that, uh, or was on the team that played in that Super Bowl against the Steelers in 79. Um, you know, had a relatively short after the mid seventies, he was around, but wasn't quite the same, you know, level of player. But if you just look at some of the numbers again, these are all unofficial, but eight and a half sacks in 69, 12 in 70, eight and a half in 71. And those were all with the giants. And then he moves to the Rams 12, uh, or excuse me, eight and a half, the year I was talking about where he had the 15 sacks he was credited with was a really good defensive player on some kind of underrated or maybe underappreciated Rams teams um, is credited again, all unofficially with 104 career sacks. So, um, and he's also the only player in NFL history to have two safeties in one game. And I had dryer seven, so I don't know Darren where he was for you, but, I had him right in that same rage you did right after Taylor and uh, Chandler. Okay. And I mean, he, he was a member of that, uh, you know, the fearsome foursome. I mean, that was, we talked about great defensive lines earlier. I mean, that's probably one of the most outstanding defensive lines too. I mean, you had uh leaving a Rosie Greer, um, uh, Dreyer, uh, Merlin Olson. And uh, I'm trying to think who's the other, yeah, another big star on there. And I'm ashamed. I forgot his name. Um, well, Youngblood came later. Right. Youngblood actually ended up playing well, opposite a dryer. Did you say Deacon Jones? Deacon Jones. That's yeah, it. no, that that's the guy. Yeah, that's that's you right. know one of the best offense or best defensive linemen of all time, Deacon Jones. Right. And you know, he they have him down. I had uh, John Turney on for the jersey number 85s, and John Turney is with the Pro Football Journal, and he is one of the two gentlemen, him and Nick Webster, that this past summer got those sacks totals from 1960s mm-hmm. all the way to 1981 mm-hmm. put on pro football reference. And, you know, he, he, he told, you know, he went on and on in that uh, episode telling us how him and Nick went through all the game books, game film, you know, Chris Willis from NFL films helps him out, gave him some game films and some places to check out there and you know, diligently went through these sacks. So I think they're pretty legitimate. They'll probably never be accepted as gospel to the NFL, but I think those 15 sacks are legitimate. I believe what John, John and Nick are telling us. All right. So how do we want to, I like Chandler for five. Do we want to go Chandler dryer Taylor? That's fine with me. Um, I mean, I, I think you could make a case for all of them. It sounds like Chandler is the consensus five. Um, you know, it's hard to compare the two of them between dryer and, uh, and Taylor, but you know, because they played on opposite sides of the ball. But um, I could go. Yeah, I, I I don't feel strongly either way about you know one of them being being over the other one. Yeah, the only thing that I I was I, mean, I was a little bit disappointed that Dreyer, uh, according to the the whoever decides who's the goes to the Pro Bowl. I don't I don't know who it was at that time. Might have been the coaches. Might have been the press. But only giving him uh, making one Pro Bowl. That kind of surprised me for the, the stature that that man was, I remember, you know, the majority of his career, uh, you know, I was young then, but I remember him playing 
And that, that really shocked me that uh, he only had one Pro Bowl, where you know Taylor and Chandler each had you know multiple Pro Bowls and some All Pros to to boot with that. I'd be fine be, with, I'd be fine with bumping Taylor over Dreyer too. I think that that'd be fine. Okay. Yeah, and it, I do think I saw something that said Dreyer one year was selected but couldn't play because he was hurt. But um, you know, the point still stands. So yeah, I think I think that's the the order my brother just listed sounds like probably the correct answer. So. Okay, so, we're, so we'll go uh, Chandler 5, Taylor 6, Dryer 7. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, where, where do we want to go next here with this? This, I, is where I, this is where I slid the homer pick in and put Bavaro at number 8. Um, you know, all pro, t- only seven years with the Giants, and then I don't know if he wore number 89 with either uh, – with either Cleveland or Philadelphia. Um, I'd have to look that look into that, but um or six years with the Giants. But you know, for a couple of those years he was the all pro tight end. He won two Super Bowls, was a very prolific blocker and part of that off he was he was very central to that offense, whether it was running towards him or as a primary pass catcher in that offense. It's not like the Giants of that era were throwing the ball 50, 50 yards down the field a whole lot. Um, you know, again, it's hard to... He's a guy who is probably the third most beloved player on those teams to this day. Um, you know, I'm talking about looking back with hindsight of 30 years. So you try to separate sort of the lore and the the mystique, if you will, around Bavaro and, and some of those plays. But... Um, I will also readily admit that there's a little bit of homerism in there for me, but I just, I had to get him in and this felt like a good spot to sneak him in there. So I did not have Bavaro eight. I did have Bavaro in my top 10. I at number eight went with another tight end. I went with Frank Whitecheck, three, three pro bowls, 98, 99, 2000, and also played a role in the music city miracle. So I don't know, maybe that bumped him up ever so slightly being part of that memorable playoff game against Buffalo in early 2000. So I did have Bavaro. I had Bavaro at number 10, but Whitecheck was my number eight. I had the exact same thing as Dan did. I had Whitecheck, then Bavaro right after him. So I actually had Bavaro 10, not nine, but your, your point's taken. So yeah. Did you have Whitecheck somewhere on your list, Andrew? I actually didn't. Um, I had him just sort of as like just outside of it. Um, but uh you know, he's it. I think I was, I was, when I was looking at the list, I was expecting to put him on the list and then just wasn't quite as impressed as I expected to be. But I mean, again, you're talking, it's not like you guys had him at number two when I didn't have him on the list at all. You know, if it was a top 12 or a top 13, I definitely would have had him. Certainly one of the, you know, in the late 90s, it looks like was a three time Pro Bowler. Um, in that era. So, and like you said, was involved in one of the most famous plays of all time. I believe he actually should be credited with a completed pass. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely see why check being there and did, did play a lot longer than Bavaro. Um, now I don't know how many years he, I don't know if he wore the uniform the whole time. He had nine years in number 89 to Bavaro's, Six. Six. So, you know, he had 11 years total, but he had uh, four different jersey numbers he wore. I'm sorry, three different jersey numbers he wore. Yeah, yeah. Maybe with Washington, he had a couple of different numbers. And then right. Houston, Tennessee, the Oilers, then the Titans, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But um, 
you know, I could certainly see putting my check on there and I could see putting him above Bavaro if that's the consensus. Darren, you said you wanted disagreement. I think we've got some here because by my calculation, you and I each have one more to name and Andrew has two. I do. I, I, I find that interesting, too. I'm, I'm anxious to hear this. Should I go with one of my next guys here? Sure. All right. So I went a little uh, a little maybe maybe off the board. I don't know. I went with a guy by the name of Bob D, who, again, I have to admit, I did not know much about. Um, and I sort of, again, look at a guy who played most of his career in the AFL and I give it a slight minus, not a ton, but slight, but uh, a couple of years with Washington, 57, 58, and then played eight years with uh, the Boston Patriots, four-time all-star in the AFL, so their equivalent of a Pro Bowl, 61, 63, 64, 65, second-team all-AFL. His number is retired from the Patriots, um, which, again, I factor in a little bit with these things. Played in 134 games. Um, apparently left Washington for a year to go back and coach the offensive line at Holy Cross, which is a little bit weird. Um, so I went with him here. Um, he had 33 sacks, uh, recorded officially 33 sacks, um, not including his strip sack of Tommy O'Connell in the AFL's first exhibition game. This likes to point out here. Um, two interceptions in the Patriots Eastern Division Championship game against the Bills. You know, so just a pretty long... Um, Pretty long, you know, lengthy, solid career in the AFL. Obviously, it was the AFL, and it was in the pre-Super Bowl era for the most part. So probably not a ton of people would, you know, uh, know about him. But he also, if you look at a picture of this guy, he has the 50s football player look. Yeah. <laughs> That's not that I'm counting that, but he's got the haircut and the jaw and the, you know, and I would also note that that 63 Patriots team that made it, I think they made, they lost the AFL championship game to the Chargers. Now they, they lost it very horribly with a record of 51 and 10 or a score, I should say, of 51 and 10. You know, prior to Parcells, you got not a lot of bright seasons for the Patriots franchise. They got that one Super Bowl in 80, um, in 85, which incidentally, just to go on a little bit of a digression here, the Patriots between their founding in 1960 and uh, the Super Bowl they make with Parcells in 96, they make two championship games. They make an AFL championship game in 63 and they make the Super Bowl in 85. They lose those two games by a combined 41 and 36, a combined 77 points. So you understand why it was so depressing to be a Patriots fan for all those years. So I actually also had, they'll all still tell you about it at length as if the last 20 years haven't happened. <laughs> and how bad they were from 1988 to 1993. <laughs> oh, all right. Great. Um, go sorry. I, I hate, I hate to be a Patriots sympathizer, and you guys are forcing me into this week, but I'm a Steelers fan. I went, uh, you know, we were four decades of before we had a winning season. So, yeah, and we've we've <laughs> talked about that in in one of our I forget whether it was some of our early football episodes. It's like I've brought that up that it's hard to, you know, a lot of franchises that were bad for a while, like the we always talk about as Giants fans how bad the Giants were from 1963 until 
the early 80s and, you know, how much suffering, quote unquote, the fans had to go through. There were still eras, you know, in the 50s and the 30s where they were good. And a lot of franchises have that, the Lions, the Cardinals, whatever. The Steelers, until they started getting good in the early 70s, they were like the laughing stock of the league, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, most of the 60s. I mean, again, you would take those 40 years for the next 40 years or 50 years at this point. But, um, yeah, it's funny that there was no bright era before the early 70s. When you look at video clips of the Steelers from like the 60s when they play the Lombardi Packers, they got these different uniforms and they got like the yellow on the shoulders. Darren, you must know what I'm talking about. And you just you look at this team and you're like, who the heck are these guys? Like, it looks like a team that's not that's not in existence anymore because you figure I don't know when they changed their uniforms. So, you know, sometime in the early 70s or something. It's been the same uniform, you know, with essentially the same team with playing in only two arenas with only three coaches. And it's like you forget, like Andrew said, you forget that there were decades of ineptitude before. So, yeah, no, there there can be this sort of turnaround. I also should mention that when I was a kid and the Patriots were considered the one of the, you know, the laughing stock of of the NFL and of sports in the dictionary that we the dictionaries that we would use in my elementary school, I think it was the word dejected. It was and the picture in the dictionary of the word dejected was a Patriots player. I think it was Tony Eason in that 85 Super Bowl with his head in his hands. And it literally was the dictionary definition of the word dejected was a football was a Patriot player with his helmet in his hands. So all of that is a long winded way of me saying that I also picked Bob D. He was my my last guy. He was my number nine. And he, he kind of. I don't know. The more we talk about this, the more I'm not feeling great about my Bavaro pick. But um, I don't know. I'm I've now given my list and you all have each have one more. So I'll, I'll be curious to hear what you guys have. Well, I'll, I'll tell you my uh, number 10. It's weak. You guys have a much stronger case for D. I did not have D. I took somebody that I felt was a significant player, even though they don't have the the hardware and to show for it and the, their career stats and everything. But I, I picked Santana Moss and I think he was just that a player uh, when he played with the jets, when he played with the Redskins, he was that guy that you had to worry about on auto offense. He was a difference maker and he changed the way defenses played against him for, you know, over a decade. And that's why I chose him, but it's, it's very weak. Uh, Bob D's uh, defense that you guys have is much stronger. And I think you guys have swayed me. Well, Andrew still has one more over Y check. So I'm curious to hear that too. Yeah. And I'm not thrilled with this. The the guy I had listed here was I had Nat Moore, the receiver. He spent a lot of years with the uh, Dolphins, 74 to 86. He was only a one-time pro bowler. He's also kind of famous because he was the guy you see in the clip with the, what they call the helicopter catch. He's that guy who spins around in the air, um, retired with basically every Dolphins receiving record, although they were pretty quickly broken by uh, Mark Duper. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I hard for me to argue him over Wycheck, but that was the guy I had initially. 50, t- you know, he had five over 500 catches, 74 touchdowns in his career. Um, 
you know, also returned punts and kickoffs. Um, you know, was on some good teams, obviously played in the uh, came to the Dolphins just after the, the back-to-back Super Bowls, but would have been on the team in um, in 84 and 82, actually, come to think of it. That uh, that went to those two Super Bowls and lost them to Washington and San Francisco, respectively. But um, you know, again, won't uh, won't fight too hard on on him in favor. You know, if you guys want to go with Wycheck or somebody along those lines. And Darren, you had Bavaro too. You said, yeah, I had I had Bavaro on my list. Okay, I, so I we- was very similar to you, except for at the end, you had D and I had Moss. But- um. And and we had Wycheck and Andrew didn't. Correct. So a compromise between you guys would be Wycheck and D, and that would mean that all ten of mine made it on. So I don't know. Maybe that's. <laughs> I, <live with> that. <laughs> I I think that's the, those are the most compelling cases. I think those two. I mean, if if we're arguing between Wycheck and and D with, uh, you know, uh, who who else do we have against them? Uh, Moss and uh, Moore. I think Wycheck and. Um, or have it hands down. Can I mention a couple other guys that I just kind of had on there? And these are these are all sort of more recent or relatively recent guys. Sure. I had I had mentioned possibly Amari Cooper. Now he only and what's funny because I I had forgotten exactly which numbers we had done with you before. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, I feel like I've had this conversation before. And then I remember that Andrew and I did 19 also. And we had the Amari Cooper conversation on the other end of it. And I think we kept him off of 19. Maybe we didn't. I'd have to go back and listen because he hadn't worn, you know, he hadn't worn 19 his whole career. And now come to find out that he didn't wear 89 his whole career either. But he did have a couple good years at the beginning of 89 um, with uh, with Oakland. And he made it made the Pro Bowl in his first couple of years. So since just like with 19, he didn't wear it his whole career. We probably can't keep him on, but I think the fact that he wore it for a couple of seasons was worth mentioning. I had Mark Chamura, the tight end for the Packers during the Favre years for a couple of couple of years, you know, the Super Bowl teams. And then the other guy I had was Doug Baldwin, who was on the, the Seattle team with, with Russell Wilson and, you know, won the Super Bowl five, six years ago. So those were my sort of honorable mention guys. Mm-hmm. I had one of those two that we haven't talked about that I almost put on the list. That's Billy Joe Dupree, who was a great tight end of the Cowboys in the 1970s, early 80s. Um, you know, this guy had he had you know, three Pro Bowls, of course, a Super Bowl championship uh, with the Cowboys. Um, but he he wore the jersey for basically 11 years with the, the Cowboys, and uh, you know was the the go-to guy when uh Staubach would get in trouble or, or uh, Danny White when he was quarterbacking. So I, I didn't put him on the list. I'm a little bit ashamed of that, uh, especially picking uh, um, Santana Moss over him, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he's significant. Andrew, do you have any that uh, you wanted to add? Um, no, I think we covered a lot of the guys that I had. And then, you know, some of the more recent guys that I had just sort of made, you know, made note of on my, on my list here. So I, I think we've kind of exhausted uh, the, the guys that are on the list, the guys that are close. And then the guys who maybe down the line uh, would be on it, depending on uh, how the rest of their careers develop. I, I totally agree. So that was, that was a, 
a great uh, discussion here, guys. I appreciate that. That's a lot of insight that you guys bring into this and, uh, you know, especially the stories I've at the Del Rio story. That's going to make me go have to go to newspapers.com to check that out myself. That's a, that's a good one. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'd love to know what the financial terms were, but I'm guessing those were not disclosed and will never be disclosed. So probably not, probably not, but I'm, I'm sure that, uh, you know, he probably was driving a sports car after that, that, uh, Del Rio <laughs> paid for or something. I'm sure probably a good story there too. So, um, well, why don't you uh, tell us about what we got coming up uh, in the next uh, few episodes of the Hello Old Sports uh, podcast? Sure. We're doing, uh, we actually um, were recording just tonight. We were recording before we started with you, and we're going to finish it up um, after this. We're, we did an all time Giants team, uh, New York, you know, New York football Giants, you know, starting 11 for offense and defense, and then, you know, kicker, punter, returner, that type of thing where, you know, we don't entirely follow the seasons, but we, um, you know, we, we start and try and follow them a little bit. Um, so we're, you know, we're going to be doing a little more football as, as the fall rolls around, uh, the next episode to post will probably be one about Philly, uh, Philadelphia sports in 1980 and 1981, when between June of 80 and, uh, you know, uh, January of 81, all four teams in Philly made, the championship game of their respective sports. So we've got that coming. We've got um, an episode on the 1959 go-go Chicago White Sox that made the World Series. That was a listener request. And um, some other things, I think we're going to do the, the 20th, or the th- uh, we're going to do a, an episode on 1986 in sports uh, for the 35th anniversary of that. There's a lot of interesting things that happened in sports in 1986. We think we're going to do one on the, 1996 Yankees, which holds a special place in both uh, Andrew's and my heart. Um, what else? Um, we have one one sort of bigger thing that we want to talk about, but but Andrew had a cool idea of this random year thing that we're going to do. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and we may have even talked about this the last time we were on here. We tend to, I like to come up with a bunch of ideas and then, you know, we still have a bunch in the in the can and a bunch to record, so it's kind of a while before an idea comes to fruition, but sort of an ongoing series. I was thinking that we can start as like, I think when you came on, you know, when you joined the the call, we were in the middle of recording another podcast we were expecting to be done with. And we always go long. And I kind of thought as a challenge, I'm going to guess we can get a podcast out of almost any team. So as a challenge, I thought we could pick a year sort of randomly from the 20th century and then pick a team randomly from the 20th century and then do an episode on them. So it would be kind of funny if the first one we do is a team that enrages me, like a team that from my childhood beat a team I like or that I had players I didn't like, but more likely than not, we're going to end up with a team that's not a distinguished team. You know, we might end up with the 1977 Houston Rockets, who I don't know what they did, but let's say they went 500. And, but I'm guessing with the guys on the team, things that maybe happened in the years before the years after we can get 50 minutes to an hour out of an episode where we just pick a random team and talk about them. I don't know that we want to go to that well too often, but it's always nice to have that in sort of our back pocket as a, as an ongoing theme of just like, and maybe we'll learn some cool stuff. Like I like similar to how I, Never would have learned this Otis Taylor, Jack Del Rio thing if we weren't doing the 89s today. Um, I'm thinking we're going to uncover some gems there. 
I think you you guys are all over it. I think that sounds very interesting and it's going to, you know, educate, you know, myself included, the listeners that listen to the whole sports on, you know, maybe some teams we're not that familiar with. You know, I, I, you know, like you say the 77 Rockets, I probably couldn't even tell you any players were on those team, but I'm sure there's probably some NBA stars that were, you know, either at the end of their career, beginning of their career, or, you know, that we didn't even recognize were Rockets then. So, and we're going to limit it to basketball, baseball, and football because neither of us are, are hockey guys enough to. Uh, all the people that listen to cricket just turned off their the podcast. You know? <laughs> yeah, if we ended up with like the 1984 St. Louis Blues, I think that would be, uh, we would have the Blues, I think, if that was what we <laughs> chose. Yeah, so, but but we'll, we'll see how it goes the first time or two. And, and uh, it, like I said, it's nice to come up with sort of recurring ideas we can go back to if, if the wells really weren't running dry at any point. And then yeah, the other, I, go, go ahead. No. And then the other thing I would mention, and this is in the very preliminary stages and, and shout out to Arnie Chapman, who, who runs this whole thing, this whole network, because he just emailed us this morning, but um, the uh, manager of the former manager of a number of teams, uh, most notably the Mets in the late nineties and early two thousands, Bobby Valentine, who took them to a world series, you know, well-known guy. He's been, you know, he's been on ESPN and he's, you know, managed and managed some different teams and, you know, a well-known guy, Bobby Valentine, somebody who actually was in the news a lot over the last couple of weeks because with the 20th anniversary of nine 11 and the role that the Mets in the city played in that, um, he is coming out with a new book, uh, an autobiography that he's written with somebody. And Arnie was contacted by his publicist, uh, you know, asking if somebody on the Sports History Network wanted to do an interview with him. And, you know, we doing sort of probably of all the shows, we probably do the most baseball of, of any show. Maybe there's one or two others. I don't want to slight anybody. But um, so that's, you know, there's the possibility that Andrew and I at some point over the next couple of months will be doing an interview with Bobby Valentine, which would just be you know, incredible oh, cool. because, you know, yeah, we, that, that would be awesome. You know, that, that, we, that we, works out for you. So do we, and we certainly thought we'd get some authors and stuff when we did this, but nobody on the, the level of a Bobby Valentine. So that would be uh that'd be pretty cool. And we were joking. We, we grew up listening to him go, go back and forth and, you know, getting big arguments with the, the sports talk hosts on sports talk radio and WFN in New York. And we listened to his teenagers. So, um, it'd be cool to kind of, kind of be in that role, although we certainly wouldn't, wouldn't aim to make it contentious, but um, so um, yeah, so that's, you know, again, a lot of, I think a lot of moving parts probably still have to come through for that to happen, but um, you know, hopefully, hopefully that's something to look forward to uh, maybe coinciding with the release of his book in early November. Well, I wish you guys luck. I, I hope that comes to fruition for you because that sounds like a, a really awesome uh, opportunity for you guys to get to talk, especially somebody that uh, you guys followed from the New York area that was yeah. uh, such an integral part uh, at some very big times in the city and uh, help them heal. So exactly. Be incredible. Well, I don't want to take any more of your time guys. Cause I know I, I interrupted uh, your segment that you were recording and I know you got more to record and uh, I don't want your voices to be uh, you know, too dry to finish that episode yeah. because uh, I'm one of your listeners. So I want to make sure you guys are <laughs> tip top fresh shape. So no, I appreciate uh, your time and your knowledge guys. And this is always a pleasure, Darren. And I just want to say real quick, um, you know, obviously, you know, you, you do many episodes a week. So, you know, I don't haven't listened to every single number, but I listened to you with, uh, with George Pazica, who you and I both had the pleasure of meeting at the, uh, at the PFRA convention a couple months ago and listened to you and him do 76 a couple weeks ago. And I think I emailed you to let you know this, but I, I really enjoyed that. And George, 
as a lifelong Canton resident really brings a, a really cool perspective. So um, to put in a plug for a specific episode, if you haven't listened to one, I really enjoyed Darren and George doing 76 a couple weeks ago. So that was a really good one. Well, well, well thank you. And I mean, I hope I'm not uh, spoiling anything, but there is a good chance that George uh, maybe and his son, John, who is uh, a radio personality in the Canton area, may be joining our network uh, with a, a show of their own. So well, that, that's in the works, hopefully, that uh, that'll come to fruition, too. So to hear more of George. Hopefully we get Bobby and the network gets George and we just continue to grow. So that sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, guys. That was a great list we put together, and uh, I appreciate your time. Thank thanks, you Darren. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows towels and even shower curtains go to sportshistorynetwork.com ROW number one for access to the full row one catalog and for gallery prints and gift items plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the row one pictorum gallery with coupon code SHN15 follow the link on the show notes That's all the football history we have today, folks. Join us back tomorrow for more of your football history. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.